Welcome back to Financial Matters with Richard Oring. I am John Jay Gay. Rich, great to be back with you. Jag, I think it's been since August since we recorded our last podcast, and that's all my fault. It's all right. It looks like you've been uh, renovating the entire office there. I'm looking at your surroundings. It looks nice. So we started this um, right after Labor Day in September, mm-hmm. and literally last Monday, so that would have been a couple of days ago, um, we got the floors finally done. So I got my office set up. It, the whole office is about 95% done, a little fixes here or there. But I got to tell you, I've been working in about a four-foot area on a tabletop in my <laughs> office in the conference room. <laughs> and after a couple weeks of that, it's hard. It's depressing. Like all your files, all your stuff you're working on or you put on hold is in a box. And I got to tell you, Wednesday, I came home from work and my wife goes, how was Tim? Like, it was awesome. I loved working today. I was finally back at my desk. I felt comfortable again. You know, something as little as just cleaning off the top of your desk and getting everything organized can make for such a better mindset when you're working. So I can't even imagine doing the entire office. Well, when you do the whole office, you go through all those um, files. You just hide places yes. that you don't know what to deal with. And then you finally give it to someone to scan or destroy. Yes, exactly. So I don't have a lot of junk anymore. Not quite as fun as finding a $20 bill in your winter coat the first time you put it on for the year. But So I'm not the only one who looks forward to putting winter coats on? <laughs> I'm like, oh, look at this. I found some chains, uh, maybe an old USB key with some songs on it. <laughs> Exactly. Well, Rich, it's been a minute, and uh, today we're going to get back into the financial world, and we're talk about mutual funds. Now, for me, I know I've got a retirement account from when I was had employers, and there's mutual funds and targeted funds for when I'm going to retire and all that stuff. But beyond the basic idea that a ton of different funds go into a mutual fund by definition, I really don't know a lot about it. So where do you want to start today? Well, for this episode, I'm not going to break down everything about mutual funds. Okay. I think the most important thing what I want to accomplish today during this episode is to really break down and understanding what you're paying for. Okay. Nothing's free. <laughs> right. And with mutual funds, it's not like they send you a bill. You don't even see it coming out of your account. Right. But you should know what you're paying for and how to find those costs. All right. So where do we start? Why don't we break down this episode in a few sections? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about um, the resources where you can find these costs and also the performance. Yeah, you want to know how you're doing? Yep. Some definitions. We, we always throw definitions in every podcast we do. Mm-hmm. So I'm paying for something. Am I getting my value for it? Just because I show you where the resources are and the definitions, you got to still know how to analyze that data. Mm-hmm. And it's not difficult. And those who are using an investment advisor... After this podcast, I'm hoping over the weekend, you're going to take time, look at your own portfolios and start writing notes and seeing if the funds are good and going back to your broker. And you should be equipped to be able to ask questions. All right. So you said we're going to start with resources, Rich. What are some of the resources out there that investors can look at to get some of this information? Sure. I think my favorite one is investor.gov. This is a website our government has given us uh, where you can do your own research. It has educational pieces in there. It has sections where you can check on broker history, on how long we've been in the business, what licenses we have, any complaints, things like that. But they have a section called financial tools. Mm -hmm. And there's something where you can put a mutual fund ticker symbol. And again, every mutual fund has a four character, um, 
abbreviation four character, symbol. Um, yeah. symbol. I'm, I'm using my fingers just to make sure it's four. <laughs> symbol where you can research on that fund. So you just put the ticker symbol in or you can type the mutual fund in and boom, comes up the screen. Beautiful. It shows the expense ratios, shows you where it fits in with the expenses compared to its category, shows performance. It gives you a lot of information. All right, so investor.gov is that website. And of course, we're going to include all these resources in our show notes as well. Where else can people look? Okay, so morningstar.com. Mm-hmm. Now, all this data, which goes to investor.gov or other websites, Morningstar is the largest data provider for investments. Okay. So a lot of companies buy their data from Morningstar, but Morningstar also has their own website. You can go type in a mutual fund name, ticker symbol, and get that information. So those are two industry websites, investor.gov and morningstar.com. Where else can people go? I kind of like the investor.gov over the Morningstar because it's designed for the consumer where Morningstar might have a little bit more technical information. Okay. Then a lot of people I know track their portfolios on MSN Money or Yahoo Finance. Mm -hmm. Um, There's companies like Investatopia, I think, even offer some tools. If you're in a 401k plan, a lot of the 401k plans offer online access. And within the online access, they usually give you investment information on the mutual funds. A lot of time, again, this is coming from Morningstar. Okay. There's probably many other other places you can gather data from, but those are the, probably the biggest ones out there. Mm-hmm. The most important though, which I didn't mention, I wanted it to be last because I didn't want it just to get washed over, is every mutual fund has a prospectus. Okay. The prospectus is a document which details everything. It details the investment objectives, the strategy, it has a lot of more finer points like past performance. What's their distribution policy paying out on capital gains and dividends? Who's the fund managers? What's the management team like? How long they've been there before? A lot of times they'll show you their education, past work experience. What's the risk in investing in the fund? And then most important, because we're talking about this in this episode, it shows the fees and the expenses within the mutual fund. You know, it's funny you mentioned the prospectus, Rich, because I think, you know, previously I would get all these packets in the mail and be like, ugh, you know, I, I don't have time to deal with this. And I would throw it away or file it somewhere. And now I switch to online and I'll get a couple emails every month of, you know, this is what's going on with this mutual fund. I never read them. And I think most people don't, but it's really important. And I'm so glad you brought it up because the prospectus has so much information that you can really learn just by looking through it. Right. So in the prospectus, you're not any different than anyone else. (laughs) Most people who are investors, shareholders, aren't reading the prospectus. Yeah. As an investment advisor, I'm obligated to read that prospectus and understand what's going on with that fund and how it's working. A lot of it's common. Yeah. I'm just looking for differences or the numbers. Mm Mm-hmm. But as an investment advisor, we're supposed to understand what we're selling. Sure. And that information is in the prospectus as part of our due diligence. Saying that, a lot of the information in the prospectus is being fed to companies like Morningstar. Right. So the Morningstar is almost, part of it is like cliff notes of the prospectus. Oh, the high school me loves cliff notes. I remember those days. But the prospectus is a legal file document, which is available. I mean, technically you're supposed to have it every time you sell a mutual fund. Mm -hmm. That's why they send you the emails. Yeah. 
and it has all the details. When I first got in the business, and we're going to talk about share classes later, but I had a client who passed away who owned a mutual fund. And the fund company wanted to charge a back-end surrender charge to liquidate that fund. Mm-hmm. And something didn't seem right to me on that. Mm-hmm. So I remember reading in the prospectus that if someone died with a B-share, the redemption charge was waived. Ah, So I called the fund company. We went through the prospectus and I showed them. So in this prospectus, Rich, there are a lot of definitions and a lot of words that I think if you don't know what you're looking for, like you as a professional, that can get a little bit confusing. So what are some of the terms to look for, whether it's on a website or in a prospectus, and what are some of their definitions that we can get a better grasp on this? Sure. I think that's um, important to understand. A lot of these terms I'm going to use, if I slip and call it something else, I'll try to correct myself. Sometimes there's multiple terms for one thing. And sometimes as an investment advisor, we might be stuck using it in a different way, like a different term. Whereas consumers who read mutual fund magazines and stuff might be calling it something else. We understand what it is. Though. Okay. Got it. Talk to us. All right. Perfect. So let's talk about the load. Okay. So load is upfront backend commissions. Mm-hmm. This is how investment advisors get paid. All right. Okay. So a lot of times we see an A share. Mutual funds have share classes. You'll see the name, and then sometimes you'll see A, B, C, F, N. Mm-hmm. It's like an alphabet now. If you don't see any share class, it's usually what we call a no load, and I'll catch that in a second. So a front-end load means that you're paying a commission at the time of the purchase. So if the commission is, I mean, you can see them as high as 5.75%. That's average. On a 5.75%, Commission, as soon as you invest that money, they're taking that right out. So what you're saying is, say 5.75% as an example here. So say round numbers, you invested $100 in this mutual fund. $5.75 of that goes to the advisor, and then the remaining $94.25 goes into the investment, correct? Correct. Um, Out of fairness, it doesn't go to 100% to the advisor. It goes to... Uh, it's the gross dealer concession, we call that. And it goes to usually the broker, and then we might get a part of it. Common is like we get 5% credited to us you know, of that 5%. Okay, but bottom line is that commission comes out of your investment and goes to the other people involved, and then what's remaining goes into that investment. Correct. Now, when you pay an upfront commission, the internal fees we're going to talk about are usually lower. Right, because you're paying more on the front end. Got it. Correct. So for long-term investing... You know, someone wants to pay a commission up front. They don't want to pay management fees. That's usually the ideal situation. You're paying it up front as opposed to later as the money grows. Correct. And usually the more money you give with the fund company, they start lowering the commission. They're called breakpoints. Okay. Or if you know that you're going to open the mutual fund with 10000 today, but you know that you're getting a big check in a few months, it's going to be another 100000 you can even sign a letter of intent to get the discount right away knowing more money's coming in the future. So it's like almost any kind of uh, goods or service where if you're going to be spending a lot of money with somebody, they'll give you a break on some stuff because you're doing the volume of business. Got it. Okay. Exactly. What about a back-end load, Rich? So a back-end load was really, really common when I first got into business. Um, there used to be something called a B-share. Mm-hmm. A B-share, you would sell it to the client, they give you the $100, and they have $100 working for them right away. Mm-hmm. The internal expenses would be a little bit higher than an A share. The B share would convert 
to an A share after the seventh year. Okay. But if you sold the B share within the first six years, usually there would be a back end surrender charge. So maybe the first year, if you were to sell it, it would be like a four or 5% back end surrender. And then it would start going down. Now today you see back end charges in a little bit different way. Mm-hmm. Some advisors use C shares, which have a higher internal expense than an A and B. You usually pay nothing up front, but a lot of the fund companies are making you hold it for a year because they pay the investment advisor up front usually about 1% on average. Okay. Not all of them, but on average. So they need to recoup their costs by um, having a surrender charge if you sell within the first year. Some are three months, some are six months. They're all different. Again, you should know what that is. You know, we talked about um, Reg BI, I think, once before. Big change is what happened earlier than this year. Mm-hmm. A lot of the fund companies are now saying if you buy a C share, they're going to convert them to an A share after so many years. A C share, the intention was usually for short term investing. Unfortunately, there are advisors out there who were keeping C shares as a long term investment, and the regulatory are looking down upon that. So the fund companies are now, a lot of them are making the C shares convert to an A share, just like how the B share used to work. All right. So you've talked about the front end load where that commission gets paid on the front side, the back end load where it gets paid on the back side. What about the no load category? So no load, we know companies like Vanguard, Fidelity. Mm-hmm. These are companies where they don't charge anything up front. Normally there's not a redemption charge, but recently a lot of these, even no load companies, might say, hey, if you buy the fund and you sell it within the first three months, there could be a back-end surrender charge. Okay. The other place we see no-load funds are is in managed accounts. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a no-load fund. In a managed account, you know everything's wrapped in a management fee. There's no commissions. Right. So a lot of the fund companies have special share classes where they have no upfront cost and the internal fees are lower because- in a managed account, we have to act as a fiduciary mm-hmm. and do what's in the best interest for the client. Right. So they try to be more competitive with the true node load companies like the Vanguard and the Fidelity than things like that. But again, even in a managed account, the advisor needs to know if there's a early redemption fee still. So sometimes they still make you hold it for three months. Otherwise, they can ding you for like half a percent to a percent. Okay, got it. So within the mutual fund, there are other fees, and these are the annual operating expenses. Let's break that down. Okay, so these are the fees you don't see. Mm-hmm. You know, when you buy a mutual fund with an A share, you put $100 in, and you don't have $100 worth, you know you're paying for something. <laughs> right. All right. So a mutual fund, your return is like net of the expenses. Mm-hmm. Okay. So- all their expenses are bundled in. I'll say it's bundled into the performance because you don't see it. Okay. All right. So all these fees we're talking about, they could be summed up as the annual operating expense. So let's start off. The manager and his team has to get paid. Sure. These are called the management fees. Mm-hmm. It's usually the largest. The next one I love, it's the distribution fee or we call it the 12B1 fee. Okay. This fee covers the cost for marketing and for distribution. 
So on an A share, on a commission account, not fee base, a lot of times the advisor who sold you the mutual fund gets an annual percentage paid to them. Besides the upfront fee, they might also be getting about a quarter percent trail to them. We call that. Okay. All right. Then there's the other category called other. You know, everything has other. Right. <laughs> um, other th- expenses are going to cover their legal and their accounting and things like that. Again, when you take all three of these fees and you combine them, we call that the annual operating expense and we represent that in a percentage. Okay. So that makes up the percentage for the annual operating expense. But there are other fees that, you know, you might not know you're paying for, right? I can name a whole bunch of them. I'm just going to name common ones. Um, an exchange fee. So normally when you're buying mutual funds directly with a mutual fund company, meaning you go to Vanguard and you buy it on their platform, the statements are coming from Vanguard. Mm-hmm. Usually exchanges, there's no cost. If you're going to a brokerage firm, some of the firms might charge you $5 to do the transfer. Okay. So it's important to understand what an exchange is. So let's just say I own a fictitious mutual fund and an A share. So I paid 5.75% up front. I have it in my IRA. I've owned it for five years. And because I'm getting older, my risk is changing. I want to change that fund. Mm-hmm. Usually what an, what an exchange is, I go from that fund within that fund family to another fund of the same share classes within the same fund family and not have to pay that upfront commission again. Okay. And again, with a B share, if there's, I, mean, I don't even know if there's even around, usually you can exchange and the time of holding carries over to the new B share. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first miscellaneous fee you should know you're going to find the exchange fee mostly in brokerage accounts. Okay. Then you have ticket charges. Same thing. If you go to Vanguard and Fidelity to buy their funds, usually they don't have a ticket charge. Mm-hmm. In a brokerage account, you know, you might have like a $9, $25 fee to buy or sell a mutual fund. Again, you would find that in brokerage, not managed accounts. You know, these are commission accounts. I call brokerage commission accounts. Okay. I know other firms call manage and brokerage the same. But when I'm saying brokerage on this podcast, I'm talking about a, a commission paying an account. Got it. Custodian fees. These are fees um, usually to cover the qualified accounts, IRAs and things like that for the report to the um, IRS. You always need a custodian on these accounts. And a lot of times companies charge as little as $10. I've seen companies charge up even $150 per year per account. All right, so Rich, when you add all this stuff up, if I have an account, mutual funds, and if all these fees are true, I could pay, from what I understand, as much as $1,250 a year on 100000 in investments, right? That's absolutely true. I mean, it could be higher, it could be even um, lower, but on average, that would be about right. So that's about 1.25% if my math is right. Yeah, I mean, over the years, the mutual fund costs actually have gone down, the internal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the expense ratios used to be a lot higher. You know, you'll see expense ratios usually higher in like international funds because to do the research, to put feet on in those countries, to do interviews and things like that, or are they buying their research? So usually international might have higher expense ratio. Bonds will have lower. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is the internal cost has gone much lower in the mutual fund over the years. Okay. So 
yeah, you're paying for something. Nothing's free. You know, <laughs> you work, you get paid, I get paid. Um, so, but the question is, is the value what we're paying for worth it? Mm-hmm. As we said, every single mutual fund has internal operating costs or even an upfront load. So why is it one fund more expensive than another? That really is a hard question to answer unless you roll up your sleeves and you do some research. Yeah. So on this podcast, we don't have enough time to start talking about building a diversified portfolio. So why don't we just focus on if we had to buy one mutual fund in one category and let's choose, I don't know, domestic large cap growth. Okay. First thing you need to do for your research is make sure you're comparing apples to apples. Huge, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to be comparing a large cap growth fund to a large cap value fund. Mm-hmm. All right. So you want to make sure that there are two large cap growth fund companies and you want to make sure there's nothing special about it. Mm-hmm. Some large cap might say we're lower in risk and this is the reason why. So I may not always expect them to do as well as a typical growth company invested in the fangs, you know, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, and all that fun stuff. Right. You have to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. Make sure you're comparing the same share classes too. Mm-hmm. So Jack, you know, when we're looking at the funds, I mentioned earlier, they have to be similar categories. There's Mm -hmm. a big thing you need to look at in a category. Is the manager passive or tactical? Okay. Passive means kind of like buy and hold. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're going to mirror an index. Kind of hang back, play it safe. Yeah. So if we're looking at large cap, you know, domestic growth, and I see a manager who's passive I'm going to be looking to see how they do maybe compared to the Russell 1000 growth. Mm -hmm. They should be doing something similar to them. If they're hitting it out of the ballpark and they're trying to mirror an index, that concerns me. Mm -hmm. If they're underperforming greatly, that would concern me too. Sure. Yeah. I would expect them to be similar to the index. And I would also expect the cost to be much lower on a tactical mutual fund. Those are managers who aren't trying to um, mirror an index. They're not trying to mirror the Russell 1000 growth in this instance. They're trying to add some value in their investment for their mutual fund. And so they're doing their research. They're trying to figure out what companies to buy, when to sell them. They're more tactical. I would expect the cost in those funds to be higher than the passive. Because they're actually putting more work in there, being more strategic about it and active. Correct. All right. So once you did all that research, the next thing you got to do is to see how they did. Yeah. Are they underperforming or overperforming or just doing the same as their peers? You know, you can run these reports. You can see there's a thousand mutual funds in hypothetically in large cap growth and they'll rank them. They'll say they're... Five out of 100. So five means they're in the top five percentile. Sure. So that's an easy way to look at it. Within Morningstar, I can actually look back each year how they ranked. I can see plus or minus how they did against their peer category. And I can also see how they did against maybe the S&P 500, a broader index. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's a great way to compare performance. 
with performance, though, there's risk. You know, if you have your home run hitter coming up to the plate, you know that the chances are if they make contact, there's a good chance it's going to go out of the ballpark. Sure. But you also know the big hitters have a greater chance of striking out, too. Exactly. They're not your RBI hitters. So the more risk you take, greater chance of making big gains, but also greater chances of losing money. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I was at a conference. Oh, God, this had to be like 15 years ago up in Boston visiting Putnam Investments. Mm-hmm. And that was like the time when the attorney general was going after and Putnam was in the news about their fees and all that kind of fun stuff. And their new CEO said at the time, I'm going to use Morningstar because this is what he said. Morningstar uses a star rating, one to five mm-hmm. stars, five being the best. Yep. So that rating gets broken down, weighted. It's not exactly, but it's about 50% comes from the 10-year number and then 25 and 25 from like the five and the three-year number. It's not exact. It's close. So he said, Putnam going forward, and I don't know if it's the same right now, but back then, mm-hmm. going forward's goal is to become a three-star fund consistently year after year. Because if we're a three-star fund consistently year after year, we naturally will become a four or five-star fund because we're going to take the risk off the table. Interesting. Okay. So, Jag, okay, we talked about risk. How about how do we measure it? I'm going to assume the the average investor has no clue. Yeah. If you're an investment advisor, you better. (laughs) So there's different ways to measure risk, but the most common one is called beta or the beta coefficient. If you're using Morningstar or most of the websites, they just use the word beta. Mm Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you're using the right beta to use, though. A lot of times they'll use the S&P 500 as a comparison. But if you look carefully, you can find a beta in the same category of the investment you're looking to use. So if I'm using the Russell 1000 growth as my benchmark, the Russell 1000 growth beta will always be one. That's your baseline. That's where you're starting. Got it. That's my baseline. Exactly. So if my investment is lower than one means it's less volatile and anything greater than one means it's more volatile. So in an ideal world, what you want is low beta, high performance. Your beta below one is less volatile. Your beta greater than one is more volatile. Got it. Okay. Exactly. So not to bore you, there's other terms like alpha and stuff like that, which we could talk about another... We'll do the Greek alphabet in our next podcast. Oh, I know. It's crazy. (laughs) And name some storms after while we're at it, too. And other people use different indicators to measure these things, too. But the beta is common. Alpha is common. R squared is common. That's for another conversation. But to measure risk, understand beta, one, make sure you're measuring it against the same category as your investment, same index. Below one, less... Volatile, greater than one, more volatile. Got it. Ideal world, low beta, better returns than the index. Mm -hmm. That means the manager is adding value. Yes. So Jack, let's talk about turnover. This is really important, especially in taxable accounts. Okay. A mutual fund turnover is the value of all transactions. That's buying and selling. Then we divide them by two. Then we do another division into the fund's total holdings. And if that fund has a turnover of 100% over the 12 months, that means they've replaced 
All the holdings. Everything in that mutual fund. Got it. Okay. All right. So what does that mean? Okay. So they bought and sold. Great. We made money. Hopefully. Maybe we didn't. <laughs> you got to remember that company might've bought XYZ fictitious stock five years ago. You got in the fund today. They sell it tomorrow. You might've lost money, but you're going to get hit with capital gain tax because the fund itself made money. Got it. So you got to be concerned about capital gain tax for the taxable accounts. The other thing is normally more buying and selling equals higher transaction costs. Okay. Not for commissions, but the internal operating expense within that fund. We teased us to the beginning, so I want to come back to it. Now that we have a better understanding of a lot of this terminology and how the funds, these mutual funds work under the hood, so to speak, when you're evaluating what you have, what are some questions you should be asking your broker? First off, don't be afraid to ask questions to your broker. Right. Even if you don't ask them correctly and you think you're going to make a fool of yourself, it's your money, you're paying for something, and you should understand it. Absolutely. Here's the first thing. Why are you using this mutual fund compared to another? That's a common question. And there's multiple answers they could give you. You know, what's good today may not be good tomorrow. So at that time when the the advisor made the purchase, that mutual fund might've been in the top of its category. And then over time, that mutual fund, since you've held it, has a lot of gains. So is it really not that much better where you want to sell it and then have to pay the taxes on the gains? And then what do you do it after you sell it? Do you have to buy something? And is it worth paying that upfront commission again? So those are the questions you have to ask yourself. And well, that's what the broker is probably going to explain to you in that situation. Your advisor also can't track every single mutual fund out there. Right. It's impossible. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of mutual funds. And usually what they do is they do their due diligence and they pick maybe one or two large cap growth fund companies, large cap value, and they build a buy list, let's say. That's the funds they want to track. It was great when they did the selection. It's still good. They're doing their due diligence. But let's say the mutual fund manager leaves. Well, they're going to know about it because they're watching it. They're not watching thousands of funds. Maybe they're watching 20 funds. Mm -hmm. They have software set up to alert them, things like that. All right. If the performance misses one month or one quarter, they're going to know. They're going to have conference calls with those fund companies and find out, oh, they did a bad trade, but it's going to take two months to recover from it. So they should know these kind of things. So they're going to be comfortable building a smaller list of funds to track than it is to find the best of that fund every other week when a new client walks in their door. Sure. All right. And you want your manager, your broker to know those funds inside and out. You don't want them to be stagnant and just buy stuff. And then you find them on the golf course in the middle of the work day. <laughs> you, know, you want them to be active and doing their research and, you know, having too big of a list is impossible to manage. And then hopefully you don't ask a question and they stare at you with a blank face because they don't have the answer. That's not a good place to be. What's even worse is if the answer is, well, the mutual fund salesperson takes me out to lunch every three months. Uh, or they support my seminars for me. Oh, geez. That's not what you want to hear. You know, it's interesting. 
the rules in our industry, when you buy a commission product, it has to be suitable at the time of purchase. Mm -hmm. So five years from now, it's not the same requirements as the day you bought it. Got it. In a fee-based account, an advisory account, we act as a fiduciary. Not only does it have to be suitable at the time of purchase, it has to be suitable as long as you own that account with that advisor. So as you get older or things change in your life, they need to be communicating with you and adjusting your allocation for your current needs. They also better be looking at if the fund is underperforming, should they get out of it? If not, they better have a reason. If they get examined by their home office or FINRA or SEC, state regulator, they better have documentation why they're using those investments within their portfolios, especially if it's underperforming. Yeah, it is important to emphasize that a fiduciary by law has to have your best interest as the priority. So, and I know that you work that way, Rich. And I know there's a lot of advisors out there who do that free portfolio review, but that's not always what meets the eye, right? No, I mean, it's funny. Before this podcast, I Googled a whole bunch of different things. And so many websites offer a free portfolio review. Right. We're not idiots out there, guys. Come on, let's, let's admit it. We're doing it because it's very easy to be a portfolio when we know what the past performance was. Right. So if you come to me and you show me a portfolio and it did 10%, it's very easy for me to build a portfolio that could do 15%. Mm-hmm. I'm using past performance numbers. That's not what you want on a free portfolio review. And I'm not saying that's what they all are, but I don't do free portfolio reviews unless it's like for an existing client of mine and they want me to look at their 401k. Sure. All right. But- If someone comes to me and wants a portfolio review, I'm going to charge. It's not like thousands of dollars. It's a minimum. It could be a couple hundred. It could be up to 1,500, depending on how many accounts and how many holdings and how detailed it is. Mm -hmm. So for me, what a portfolio review is understanding the client's goals, their risk, maybe their history of investing. I need to look at the tax return. Yeah. Because I don't want a portfolio to cause unnecessary tax or income in that portfolio, which might prevent the client from taking deductions or losses because of phase outs. That's big. I will tell you that I don't think most free portfolio reviews is taking that in consideration. Then I'm going to look at the positions and the allocation I'm going to first see is the allocation suitable. Then I'll drill down and look at the investments to see if they're cost effective, efficient, you know, things like that and the risk associated to it. When I'm all done reviewing that portfolio, there's times where I go to them and say, your advisor's good. Yeah. They're doing good. You know, if you want to ask questions or let them know after reviewing the the tax situation and things like that. These are things as good of a job they're doing. These are things I think you should be communicating with them. So they're aware of it because they may not be doing financial planning. They might just be doing management of an account for them. I think this really speaks to the care that you take with your clients, Rich, because it's not about, Hey, here are the numbers. Let me figure out how to goose these numbers and get them a little bit higher to really help somebody with their investments. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. 
you really have to understand the psychology of a, of a client, of what makes them tick and what their goals are, what they want to do in their retirement and their whole 360 degree picture. Because if you're not doing that, you're kind of doing them a disservice. You're absolutely right. People go to me like, what do you do? I manage expectations. Like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's what I do. I mean, if you really think about it, I mean, yeah, I could say, you know, with financial planning, I get husband and wife to sit down. We ask questions. We document a plan. We make sure we track to get there. But with investments, I manage your expectations. So you come to me and say, I want to buy, I'll never forget, I'll give you a true example. I had a client come to me, older guy, never saved enough money, had $30,000. And he comes to me is, what can you do with this? Hmm. What do you mean? What can I do? Let's figure out what you need to get to. But it was never going to be enough for him to retire. Never. I used to do his tax work. So I know what he did. I didn't touch his money. I didn't want it. He went and bought Canadian gold mine companies. Oh, jeez. So this was like in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Like he's thinking like 30,000, he's going to turn into 300,000. He's trying, he's buying a lottery ticket is what he's right. doing. This is not like buying Zoom in January of 2020. <laughs> and then come March, come out. And, you know, now you like quadrupled your money. Right. Everybody's looking for that golden goose, and it's really not the way to go. Hey, Dag, I will, I'm going to share something with you. So, as you know, I use um, professional money managers mm -hmm. to manage my clients' money, and I also use them for my own money. Yeah. So, this year, a couple of months ago, I, like, so November was the first one. I don't usually go out and buy individual stocks for myself. Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to buy IPO, so I wanted to buy a company near an IPO issue date. So, I bought Peloton. Huh. In November, I think it was like $23 a share. This is November of 19, you mean? Correct. Then in January, I bought Zoom. No kidding. So I chose two companies because I used their product. That was my only reasoning. I didn't look at the financials. I did everything I tell people not to do. <laughs> I did. I did it, Jack. I wanted to buy two companies near an IPO time period because I use the products. Totally the wrong reason to buy stock. And it's funny, I felt kind of like itchy going on with the election and everything, which is kind of cool because we didn't mention that at all in this podcast. Thankfully. And I use something called a trailing stop loss. So what a trailing stop loss is, basically you tell the stock if it drops 20% from its point to sell. Right. So let's say the share is $100 and then it goes to 130. The new trailing stop is off the 130. Okay. I did get stopped out about two weeks ago on both of them. If you remember, um, once Biden win a couple of days later, the tech stocks got hit pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And then when they started announcing the COVID vaccine again, 90% efficiency, Zoom and Peloton went down big. Interesting. So I didn't buy as much back, but I bought some back. I don't, again, don't call me for stock picks. I'm not that guy. I just was having fun and it worked out. I could probably share all the losses I did previous. There's a reason why I don't buy stocks myself. Got it. And if somebody does want to come to you, Rich, for help with their finances, to look at their portfolio or to get their retirement on track, what are the best ways to reach you? I'm a phone person. Feel free. Pick up the phone. 609-924-2049, extension 126. Second way, go right to my website, www 
N C F G.com. That's Nancy Charlie Frank George.com. You can always shoot me an email R R O R I N G at N C F G.com. And Jack, I want to say one more thing. It's funny because in our industry, a lot of people are working at home still. Yeah, I am. And I find it interesting how many people are work learning how to do Zoom meetings. Yes. I've been doing web conferencing for God knows how long. Sure. I mean, like 10, 15 years. I actually got picked up in a magazine because I was marketing and working with seniors in alternate ways. Mm -hmm. So I picked up clients throughout the whole country. But during this whole thing, I wanted to see if any advisor was smart and started branding themselves as a virtual advisor. Mm -hmm. And there was a company out there I found, just one. But if you're interested, you don't have to live nearby to work with me. I would tell you right now, most of my meetings have always been on the web or on the phone, Mm -hmm. probably at least 70 or 80% of them. And the reason why is if planning involves husband and wife, trying to get them both in at the same time is very hard. Yeah. So having Zoom meetings, that's the new term for web conferencing, Zoom meetings. Right. You say Kleenex no matter what brand it is. Right. So they both could be at work on their lunch break, Zooming in. Yeah. It's great. So if you're looking for an advisor, even if you're, you know, I'm giving stories today, but I had a client in Washington state come to me. He was one of my other reps. I supervised the mother passed away and I was dealing with him as a beneficiary to help out. Mm -hmm. And throughout the process, he goes, would you take me on as a client? I said, yeah, why not? Yeah. Because we were doing things on the web. And I said, are you unhappy with your current advisor? He goes, no, I love my advisor. I said, well, why do you want to switch? I want to make sure I don't make the same mistakes. I want to make sure it's a fit. He said, look, my advisor is like 10 minutes down the street. I travel a lot. I'm in sales. I'm always on a plane. So when I'm home, the last thing I want to do is drive 10 minutes down the street to see my advisor. And I never do it. I've had him for years. Hmm. And I think I met him once. So we started working together. Wife got involved. He got involved. And it was all over the web. There you go. So I encourage people, even if they have local advisors and it's an inconvenience, ask them if they offer web conferencing, Zoom meetings. And if you're looking for a change, call me. Sounds good. Richard Oring from New Century Financial Group. Pleasure as always, my friend. Take care. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Jack. Richard Oring's branch office is 1 Airport Place, Princeton, New Jersey, 08540. The branch phone number is 609-924-2049. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor not affiliated with Royal Alliance Associates, Inc. New Century Financial Group, LLC, and Royal Alliance Associates, Inc. does not offer tax advice or tax services. Please consult your tax specialist for individual advice. We make no specific comments or recommendations on any tax-related details.